Hello everyone, welcome to Independent Animation, brought to you by Squiggly Online Animation Magazine. I'm Ben Mitchell, Squiggly Managing Director and author of the Squiggly tie-in book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing and Distributing Your Animated Films, which served as a springboard to this particular podcast strand. As with the book, the aim is to focus on indie animation artists, the work they create, and how they go about creating it. Last spring, I put together a special dedicated to the Late Night Work Club, a shifting collective who in many respects embrace the exact spirit of independent creativity and production the book celebrates. And in the coming episodes, we'll be looking further at some of the main areas of discussion, as well as approaching different genres and categories of filmmaking. But what I also want to do is address some of the pioneers of the contemporary independent animation scene I wasn't able to originally. And among the artists who really warrant our time and attention is David O'Reilly, who we'll be chatting with in a few moments. To the very small handful of listeners who don't recognize the name, I'm certain you'd recognize his work, either on the festival circuit with films such as The External World or his webisodic series RGBXYZ and Octocat Adventures. In more recent years, he's gone on to create more interactive pieces such as Mountain, an abstract simulation of a geological formation that the viewer is prompted to engage with from time to time. And then there's the succinctly titled 109645790437692847650, a website frog-hopping experience anthologizing several micro-shorts in various states of completion, a notable highlight being The Horse Raised by Spheres that introduces visual concepts we'll see again in last year's Everything. And similar to Mountain, Everything is more of a simulated digital organic experience than a playable game per se, although one that encourages more by way of direct interaction as you manipulate a variety of environments and states of existence. Failing that, there's a good chance you've encountered some of his non-independent commercial works, such as a variety of adult swim items, the Adventure Time episode A Glitch is a Glitch, or the gaming sequences in Spike Jones's Her. What makes David's journey a particularly interesting one is how unique it is, or certainly was at the time, in many respects down to the alignment of a very distinct visual style with an exponential growth of an online audience's appetite for auteur films, films that challenge or subvert most known tropes of comedy or drama or storytelling structure in general. The films and scenarios David has produced over the years don't outright defy categorization, but they certainly give anyone in a position to do so some pause for thought. The external world alone, for example, is comprised of many loosely connected vignettes that alternate between uneasy, almost nightmarish visual concepts, absurdist sight gags, and even some curiously poignant moments. These interweave more and more as the film progresses until the final scene brings its ensemble together for a hypnagogic curtain call, one that gives the audience a sense of conclusion, although there's never really anything to conclude in any traditional sense. What the success of these works hammers home is that in this past decade or so of independent animation production, a corner has been turned that where once achieving a film that stood a chance of resonating with an audience was beholden to innumerable constraints and circumstances, is now something that can be far more tangibly achieved with a bit of digital savvy. But David O'Reilly's body of work didn't spill out of him with nil effort, nor was his career path handed to him. 
This interview we're about to hear took place following two presentations he gave at the London International Animation Festival, the first of which being a traditional retrospective of film work followed by a Q&A, the second a more concentrated lecture on, among other things, how to stay grounded in the face of success, what success even is, and crucially, how to manage expectations and reconcile yourself with making compromises in your work. Oftentimes when artists give similar talks at festivals, they tend to be a lot more inclined to give a hard focus on the positives of their career and paint a very idealized picture of what making it really is. So it was quite refreshing to see an independent artist present their experience as something largely positive, but with its fair share of peaks and valleys. And that's something that I was keen to discuss a bit more with David, as it's important to know that a realistic animation career isn't ever going to be a completely straight line. And a career as an independent director is far more likely to thrive or exist at all if paired with supplemental freelance or studio work. So needless to say, I was keen to chat with David about all of that from his beginnings as an animator to where he is now. And so here is that chat. I hope you all enjoy it. Something I I was a little unclear of from the first talk um, a couple of nights ago. Had you done work at Cartoon Saloon or did you just know of them? Had you visited them? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so that was where I started. And uh, when I came in there, and initially, I think the first like six months was just uh, they kind of directed me to reading materials and course materials. And so I was doing exercises that they kind of supervised. A lot of that was like life drawing and uh, animation exercises, a specific sort of set of animation exercises, which are the kind of, uh, I guess, fundamentals of classical animation. So I was doing that for a while, and then um, at that time, uh, e-cards were a thing, flash e-cards. It was like a very early internet thing uh, with animation. So I was doing, uh, I started doing flash work for them as a job. And that led into, uh, like there was lots of different tasks I was doing. I was doing like a lot of scanning drawings because it was, it's, it was all, you know, pencil and paper process, uh, coloring drawings. Uh, some cleanup, and uh, eventually then started learning 3D, so I was doing 3D there for different projects. I was the sort of 3D department for a while. Um, and so, yeah, it was quite quite varied. And towards the end, I was directing some stuff. Like, there was some projects where I was, like, able to create it start to finish. Mm-hmm. So then, um, did you move... To London from having worked there for a while? I moved to Dublin and I went to school there, uh, to college there for a year and when that ended I was considering like should I go back or not and so I started putting together a portfolio and just basically making stuff, making short films and then I sent that to studios in London in the sort of break between one year and another. And then I, uh, and then I moved over to London. Mm. Yeah. And so that wasn't uh, kind of immediate success from what you were saying the other day or last night. Like it kind of was a bit of a struggle to begin with. Actually, I mean, you know, life is so strange like that. Like it has, like it immediate. Like there was parts of it that were really high and parts of it that were really low, and it kind of goes with the territory with any city, I think. But I started out with like really nice situation, 
Um, I had I was working with people I had you know wanted to work with for a long time, really like great places. Um, when certain jobs finished and when I like I left one job, uh, there was periods when I was working on my own stuff, and then and that was really great too. Like that was very satisfying. And then there were periods where I was just going fully broke and you know needed work. So it was it was definitely like a roller coaster. Because you know when you start out you just don't, uh, your priorities are a bit different, and um, I didn't expect necessarily that I was like going to go and make a bunch of short films or anything like that. I did the trajectory was kind of uh, wanting to get at that time my my thing was like I just wanted to get really good. I wanted to get very. Uh, I wanted to like improve my craft, and so that was what what I was working on. Now, the things that you were kind of doing in your free time at that point, um, are those, is any of that stuff that we're familiar with, or were these kind of more like earlier ideas that... Yeah, none of that stuff is out. This is like a while ago. Um, I think, uh, well, actually, well, one of the projects I did in London was the Venetian Snares music video. So there was a, when I uh, started to have some free time, I was like, I'm going to do... I'm gonna like d direct something. I'm gonna have something where like this is a thing I've created uh, from start to end, and it's like a thing. I, you know, like I had done that a little bit before, but I was thinking about doing something in three D, and that was a huge thing for me, like because I had just started to really get into that. So uh, I made that music video, and that that was before YouTube or Vimeo, so I wasn't. Like, like the way you put stuff out, there was no real way to upload video to the internet then. So um, that went out and then eventually went on to YouTube. Um, but it's sort of, yeah, it's one of the, it's one of the only things I guess I did from that period that people might know of. Now the uh, style of the kind of commissioned work you were doing, did that inform in any way? what sort of eventually became a style that you were developing for your own work? I think I, de I mean, I definitely learned things, like I learned things about design, character design, uh, technical things about Photoshop and 3D. And yeah, I mean, there's definitely like, you know, you're, it's, it's hard to un disentangle like what, what was um, filtered in and what was not what you know what was just from my own stuff I was doing in the evenings and also what you do that's like kind of to rebel against the thing that you're forced to do so you have these like different um, this combination of stuff that the, the style that people are most familiar with was something that came on quite a bit later like three or four years after that after various experiments in different directions um, uh, for a while I was a concept artist I was doing like you know, appealing concept art, like big, big uh, Photoshop paintings. And so that, that stuff is like, would be kind of very unfamiliar to people that, ex you know, who, who are only exposed to my 3D work. But, you know, when you do that kind of thing, you do learn a lot about layout and how to arrange things and how to balance stuff out. and um, Just lots of, lots of things that do filter into the work that's more experimental and more like more formally playful but uh but yeah it's hard to pinpoint specific you know you having that more sort of traditional foundation knowledge then 
does that sort of help like the watchability of the more stylized work? <coughs> yeah, I you know I think having uh, having a foundation in certain areas is like really really important, and I'm really glad that I learned how to like I had I had done a bunch of life drawing before I did any animation drawing, and then the fact that I had done two D animation drawing before uh, doing three D stuff, uh, all of that really helps I think in in holding a thing together, because when you're doing kind of formal experimentation with uh, with animation, um, you can risk just like not communicating anything other than, hey, this is what this medium can do now. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, I was very aware at the time, and I'm very aware now that so much experimental work like just doesn't have an emotional impact or isn't saying anything in particular. Uh, it's 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 knob twiddling with software. And it can look very interesting, but has no meaning for people. It's nothing to grab onto, unless you're also playing that game of doing formal experimentation. But I think a synthesis of knowing how to communicate something and then doing it in a new way is a really important thing. And so having a bit of both is good, you know, like pushing the form a little bit and then pushing the content a little bit and knowing how these things could fit together in a new way. Like that's the kind of thing you're trying to express with when you make a, a film. Like seeing how these things go together and balancing them. One of the things that I think people kind of have struggled with when I've talked to them about making their own work is that a that sort of finding the time and also finding the motivation when, for example, there isn't an audience or a known future for a project. Sure. When you were kind of doing some of your earlier films, uh, like RGB, for example, um, was there any plan in your head or sort of hopes for what? its sort of end product would be or how it would, where it would sort of fit in in the world of animation? Uh, uh, probably the opposite of yeah. like a, a, a big expectation. I thought I, and assumed this would be unwatched by anybody. So, so the, the answer is no, I never know. And that mystery of like what's going to happen uh, is actually never really goes away. I think if you're doing your job right, because there's a thrill to that too. It's a balancing act, right? Like you, it goes between being you're always playing with an element of risk when you make anything. And there's if, if it's too little, in other words, if you're guaranteed that people are going to like this, you're not necessarily doing your job right. You're not trying anything new. You're not taking any risks. And if it's too high um, and it's it's out of control, like in, in whatever dimension you're, you're pushing it, and it's meaning or, it, or it's, it's too hidden or too uh, convoluted, then that doesn't work either. So the only thing you're thinking of is like, what would I really like to see? And what would I like to make? And you're trying to satisfy that as much as you can. And the more you do that, the better a job you're going to do for other people in the long run. Uh, so it's always a mystery how it's going to do in the world. How did that one initially perform, that uh, for as an example? RGB XYZ? Yeah. So, uh, well, that was a thing that I initially released without my name on it. It was released under another name. And so my name isn't in the credits of it. And it was this, it was part of a project where um, it was released in chunks, in, in sections. It was embedded QuickTimes, because again, this was before, this was right before YouTube. So it was kind of difficult to watch. And it was a strange website that had like 
films, comics, and blog entries, all from this character uh, who's in the film. So the initial response was, there was a Cartoon Brew article that came out about it, and that was the first kind of press I ever got in the animation world. The article, I think, is still up there, and you can read it, and it's the comments are like a mixture of people loving it and hating it, and not quite sure what to make of it. But that was during the project, right? Because it was, it was like these sections, and I didn't know when it would end. So finally, I did uh, five of these short films and then connected them, and... Um, I don't know if I even did any re-editing, but I put it, it was a solid thing. And then it was shown at the Berlin Film Festival. That was its sort of premiere. And that was my first experience at a festival ever. And it won a special mention there. And I had never won like really any kind of prize in my life at that point. I wasn't like a sporty type person. I had no idea what was going on. So I was like really amazed that other people would, would enjoy this. And then I met some people at, at that school. It was the first time I re really had any kind of feedback. I was working for so much in, in the kind of shadows up until that point for about five or six years or something. So I didn't know what to expect, but people were really uh, like surprisingly like interested in what, what, was, what I was trying to do with it in ways I didn't expect. So it was positive. It was really like, it was a good, it was a surprising thing. And it was, you know, encouraging. And since then, festivals have been kind of part of my life because you, you do realize you, you find yourself in these patterns of working for huge stretches of time by yourself or, or in small groups. And, you know, having the kind of release from that is uh, showing it with, with other films and, you know, seeing what's going on in your ecosystem of other creators. Timing-wise, I think the, the the films of yours seem to kind of coincide with a sort of changing landscape of how the online world was sort of taking in their content and mm. uh, appreciating short films as a medium. Mm. And from what I gather, I think you've had quite a lot of success both as far as like being a festival filmmaker and like an online filmmaker. And from your sort of point of view, is there one that kind of is more of a fit or do they both kind of... I don't know if I divide them up in that I like they're both really quite different. Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing is that you make a thing and then it just reaches another person's brain. Mm -hmm. How it, you know, I've never minded, I've never had a particular like a lot of people say like you see your work on the big screen, it's amazing. And lots of my shorts, I've never minded if people watch them on a phone or a laptop. Or, or a big screen. It's nice to, to see it in a cinema. There's a kind of a prestige, but at the same time, there's a real intimacy you have with like somebody watching something on the laptop. Um, when you're watching something alone, it, in a way it can affect you in a much deeper way than in a crowd of people. So that's the priority, it's like just people seeing stuff, and I'm really grateful that both uh, can exist. And as far as, obviously, festivals like have the social element to them, which is sort of beneficial for you as a as a sort of uh, person, as a social human being. But online is great because, you know, the numbers, it reaches far more people. Very often it's free. So, and, and you know, it's, it's hard to disentangle, like, how many people have arrived at my work through internet stuff or through the, the sort of older structures, the sort of festivals and, and theaters and things like that. 
so I don't I don't know uh, which is more beneficial. Like I said, it's a nice sort of time for both to kind of exist. You know? Yeah, well, I think we're going to find... It's really interesting, you know, um, because the events here at the festival, for example, are have been, like, full. And, you know, it's interesting because we're at the stage where basically a lot of festivals, a lot of animation festivals, you're sort of watching... Uh, you know, I think everything's on Vimeo or YouTube now. So you're watching that you're you're buying a ticket to watch that you you going out of your way to watch that people still do that because there is this social element to it there's an experience of it and very often of course you're meeting filmmakers and and uh hearing from them and stuff so it, the festivals used to have this thing where that was the only place you could see the work i think a lot of people thought i, I think certainly online stuff has probably had a negative impact on a bunch of festivals but at the same time it sort of uh brought out this other aspect to them this other it sort of obviated their, the necessity of, of this other aspect of it, of the event that, uh, that's never going to go away. They're both really valid, you know, and, and I think yeah, they're good things. Yeah. Yeah. I've, and I've definitely benefited from both of them in ways I haven't expected, you know. I've always, every time I put out a new thing, of my own at least, I, uh, there's always like a fear that this, this one won't work or, you know, and I have put out things, not you know, in the over the years that haven't worked so well in festivals. And like I said the other night, like the, certain ideas will work well in the online space and people will be on board and, and festivals will, um, will reject things based on their own you know, criteria. So, yeah. Certainly I found that probably something like Octocat seems like something that would be more suited to like an online viewing because it seems to be more kind of part of that Realm, right, exactly. In terms of its initial sort of setup, yeah, and then as it sort of developed, yeah, yeah, that was completely no festival took that, maybe one, uh, but I sent it to a bunch of places and it was just one after another. But that was the most successful thing on one of the most successful mm. things I've done on, on the internet, and it makes sense, you know. Mm. I wouldn't hazard a guess there. You don't want, I mean, who knows? Because online is like it's just human beings, you know, it's not. There's no like criteria for a human being who watches YouTube because that's like humanity now, yeah. or that's like a lot of people. But yeah, th there have been things like that, and every time it happens, I'm, I'm like, it kind of makes sense, but I'm also <coughs> kind of surprised by it. Mm. You always have that question mark. You're like, I just don't know what's going to happen with this, and uh, and that's good. Mm. Yeah. And with that project in particular, was that like set up as something? Was that kind of released anonymously as well? And then, mm -hmm. so the kind of ending sequence was a bit of a sort of... Reveal, yeah. yeah. At that point, were people familiar with your work? Did that proceed, something, Please Say Something? Or that was at the same time as Please Say Something was coming out. So they were both episodic short animations coming out at the same time. And even RGBXYZ was also like episodic. So I did a lot of things like that that were just built up sort of in mo these modular uh, chunks that connected to become short films. Mm. Is that a good way to sort of stay motivated then as terms of like production to do it chronologically like that? Yeah, totally. You're always trying to measure the tasks you give yourself. Mm. And again, it's a balancing act. Like if it's too small, you just get weaker and you're not challenging yourself. And if it's too great, then you just won't bother doing it. So you, it's just like I figured... You know, if you if you say to yourself, "I'm going to make a 20-minute short," "I'm going to make a 10-minute short," 
by yourself, that's a really uh, intimidating thing, depending on the type of animation you make. But usually that's an intimidating thing for an animator. But if you're like, oh, I'll just, I have, I'm going to do one minute, and it's going to be 20 seconds here, and 20 seconds there, and 20 seconds somewhere else, um, it's, it's much easier for you to break that down. That, that was the sort of method I figured out. Please say something, um, again, I guess sort of being produced in that sort of way. When you start a project like that, do you have in your head that sort of idea of what that final ending will be, or does the process of doing it in increments kind of help shape the story? Yeah, it's the latter, really. Like, I didn't know how it was going to end mm. when I started it. It's strange because, you know, as with any story, like, things are kind of inevitable if you've constructed it correctly, you know, it's sort of, the fact that it works is kind of a mystery to me, but then it's because you're working, that slower process of, of, of working, like of doing a thing, committing to that and moving on, it's quite unusual, I think, in the animation world to work in that way, but it does allow you to, uh, well, it forces you to commit to certain constraints, and it also allows you to really absorb what you've, what already has happened, and to really analyze it, which you can do in the process of writing in abstract form but the fact that I had done it in this slower way I think made it easier to probably you know construct a narrative out of it because I was aware of all of the mechanics that you know in play in a very real kind of visual way so yeah I think it, it's you know it's a helpful for me it was a very helpful method I mean you know also I was animating and building and rigging the whole that was like the whole process in this whole period of time was just just myself so it was always like a thing of like managing creating a process that I could I could manage and not get too bogged down by it now that project also I think kind of marks a, a starting the use I guess of sort of a more sophisticated like approach to the sound design um, which then I think is something that's become a very very like sort of crucial part of the work in general were you working on your own on that side of things to begin with, and then working with other people? I was, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm trying to remember. I, I mean, also I worked with a sound designer. I worked with a lot on on the Octocat on the final part of that, which had all this orchestration. Like he really recorded that orchestra. Yeah. Um, so I had some experience with it, but uh, no, the yeah the sound design for Please Say Something was uh, Bram Mandersma and and David Camp. And in the beginning, it was just it was just David, and then uh, Brahm did sort of uh, stepped in at a certain point for music and other other things. But um, it was I think also just me slowly reaching out and being like, oh, it's it would be nice to collaborate with other people, mm. and realizing that this was like something that I have ideas for, but I just can't like I'm too like you know when you know you're good at something, you also can start to know that you're bad at other things. So I started realizing this is a real weakness in my stuff, and this is something that I need like an expert uh, voice in. So yeah, that became I mean that became a priority pretty early on. For the external world, was there more people involved, sort of beyond sound, or was it again just sort of you taking on all the visuals sort of things? No, that that involved uh, three animators yeah. uh, and myself and a, and a rigging person, and then. All of the sound was one person. That was all uh, one person. And then, but I hired three animators, and they all helped me out on it. In fact, I don't know if I did any animation in that. 
at all. I did the scene setup and I did some poses, but I didn't do any character animation as far as I know. Yeah, and that was just again as out of necessity of the of the scale of the thing, and um, because that was the first time I suppose I was not doing this thing in small chunks. Like the whole thing was like seventeen minutes of uh, that needed to be uh, animated. Um, but I did build. I built all of the characters and I built all of the sets, storyboarded it. I was involved in lots of visual stuff, but but yeah, that was so. Yeah, I kind of the first branch out was like sound and then the second was character animation you know and with that film then was there some funding behind it there was a, a very strange uh, German funding scheme that helped it it was kind of an accidental thing it was something I didn't know was a possibility but if you've made a film in Germany if you made a short film in Germany um, and it wins awards each award is worth like X uh, euros per year if you do this application so we did uh, as it happened so please say something ended up winning a bunch of awards and I thought you know that's cool great it's the first time I had like a uh, successful film in the festival world and that ended up actually directly funding uh, external world and it was partly self-funded as well I don't remember how much exactly it was but yeah and you talked a little bit about a degree to which like you kind of will dip into your own resources to get projects done and stuff like that. Do you find that that sort of... Is that like a helpful thing in terms of like making sure you're on top of everything and making sure that, you know, okay, this product has to definitely be done or meet the certain, you know... Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's a necessity. Mm. Very often things wouldn't get made otherwise. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, it's a, basically an art practice, you know. Sometimes things just have to be made, and you'll do it however you, you possibly can. So when your work starts to, um, I guess, ultimately lead to commission segments and things like that, stuff for TV and movies, did they sort of bring you on board understanding what it was you did enough to sort of make it easy for you, like make it give you free reign, I guess, to put your stamp on it? I don't know if that's... First of all, even if people won't give you free reign, very often they'll say you'll they'll give you free reign regardless of how known you are. Yeah. And then like put your stamp on it, isn't it? Like I don't have I don't have any particular joy in putting my stamp on anything or whatever that might be. Generally, it's mixed, it's all over the place, you know. It depends. Some people have really no idea uh what my strengths are, but they just know that, you know, I'm a person that has to do this thing and you know because you're dealing with a chain with a system that not necessarily everybody's like gonna know what you do mm. so it's always different you know I did some very short pieces for Adult Swim uh, a few years ago and those were very very freeing like those were like like there was no that was a very lucky situation um, where there was very little resistance, um, if any, to what I wanted to do, you know. So it's not it's not one experience. It's it's always like it depends on it depends on what the thing is and who you're working with and many other things. Yeah. Well, another element I'm sort of interested in from all the people that we've sort of talked to over the years, and some people are very successful and they're still kind of struggling like emotionally. Mm. Um, 
like, and they're usually sort of fine in the end, but they'll have these, like, pockets of, like, self-doubt, which I think is inevitable, like everyone will have that. I think that some stuff that you brought up last night was quite interesting, that you have in your mind a sort of very fresh recollection of when times were not so great. Oh, yeah. Um, and is that something that, I mean, because I, I know also some people have kind of self-destructed because they have these big chips on their shoulder about not being appreciated within a certain time frame. Oh, or not, you know. got it. Um, and just sort of out of curiosity, do you have any kind of advice or observations about like what to avoid as far as you know, not getting too wound up and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, life can be tough. I don't think anyone's response to the world is ever like wrong uh, from their point of view. But I do think it's important. I I, th I think preserving your engine this is like a, a re the most important thing. Maybe even more important than actually making work is is making sure that you're maintaining your 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 person. You know your your organism the and 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 your relationship to your medium. That very simple basic thing of just like you want to get up every day and make something, like that simple thing that gets you excited about making things is um, that like when that's poisoned it's very hard to fix it and I've been in situations like that I mean I've seen it and I've and I've felt it where a certain individual it's not always a client some people have teachers for example and teachers can be so self-absorbed and self-righteous and mean and bitter that they turn their students off what they're good at their own talents and yes, yeah, and you do remember the the bad times, and you you uh, you know it's not only in your career, but your whole life. You 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 remember those things. To a certain extent, you need to experience bad things in order to know what a, a good thing is. You need to you need to have your freedom like be taken away a little bit so that you know what it's like to have it, and to know what it's like to to not have to do a job. Like these are things that uh, everyone will go through, but. I think just in sort of seeing these things before they're coming, knowing that like outcomes, particularly in the commercial realm or when you're when you're doing jobs, can have certain consequences, and in particular they can poison this uh, relationship that you have to your work. You can better avoid them. You can see them coming in the, you know, in the on the horizon. You won't get so fooled when people say, "I want you to just do," I, I you know, here's some money, and I want you to just do whatever you want to do. And you, you won't be, you know, when you know that sometimes that can that can be an insincere request, you don't get so so burned by it. Yeah. Every situation's different. But I do think I, I do think in terms of priorities, uh, it's not only just making making the best work, it is putting yourself making making sure that you can you're if you're doing it and if you really want to do it and you're you love it, that you you care about um, you look after yourself you know and and that includes not only just like managing your stress it's like things like you know your diet and your like exercise it's managing the distraction of TV and internet and social media and email it's making sure that you're like productive and that you have this positive relationship with your uh, with your work and it's not often talked about, you know, there's lots of, and everyone sort of has to figure this out for themselves. But I do think 
uh, I think longevity is like a thing that's uh, worth um, caring about. And there's lots of books on how to animate stuff, but lots of times they won't get into this other side of it. And I think it's probably even a particular thing for people in animation, or, or in independent games for that matter, is because you, you're going to have a pretty unique lifestyle. You're going to have to disappear for huge periods of time and, and have this uh, incredible discipline for committing to one thing for a long period of time. And because of that simple fact, you, you have this there's extra, I suppose, um, potential for that to put you in a situation where you're going to have to worry about maintenance things. It's going to affect your personal relationships. It's going to affect your health. So, yeah, I mean, you know, these are things that are, uh, I think, worth talking about. That was David O'Reilly offering some valuable insights into the realities of being an indie animator. I hope you enjoyed hearing them as much as I did and that there's some stuff in there you can take to heart. You can see David's work online at davidoreilly.com. There you can also purchase games and soundtracks. Also, you can treat yourself to some free downloads, including a set of 65 character rigs from the external world that you can manipulate at your whim and leisure. You can also follow him on Twitter and Instagram at David O'Reilly. And he's the David O'Reilly on Facebook if you want to keep up to speed with what he's up to. Before I sign off, a quick plug for our pals at the Cardiff Animation Festival, who announced their full lineup a few days ago. You can check it out on our site, or theirs, cardiffanimation.com. As well as a fantastic official selection, there's some brilliant stuff there, including an exhibition and behind-the-scenes talk on the upcoming feature Chuck Steele, Night of the Trampires, a beautifully animated film I did a little bit of VFX for last year. There's also networking opportunities, parties, special screenings, Q&As with the talents of Early Man, Isle of Dogs, The Breadwinner, Hey Dougie, and Captain Morton and the Spider Queen. The festival will kick off on the 19th of April with an industry day, and you can book passes for that if you go to their website. I'll be speaking as part of the panel Getting to Market at 2pm. Other panels will be focusing on licensing, distribution, uh, commissioning children's TV content, lots of stuff to sink your teeth into. So the festival runs through to the 22nd, and it takes place at Chapter in Cardiff. I hope to see some of you there. It's going to be a brilliant weekend. That's all for me for this episode. There'll be more to come soon, and in the meantime, of course, you can also visit squiggly.com for all our features, interviews, and news updates. We're on Twitter at Squiggly, Instagram at Squiggly Animation, and Squiggly Magazine on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Until we meet again... Happy independent animating.